Jeff, my beautiful wife Jessica and I, we are the youth pastors here at Grace, and I get the privilege of being part of the teaching team, and I get to bring a message about once a month. Uh, and today is my day to bring the message, and I'm really excited to be looking at Judges 12 and 13 with you all today. Uh, if you have Bibles with you, you can go and flip there. We'll be parked there for a little while today. Uh, but of course, it'll be on the Sky Bible, and it's on your phone and on all the apps and stuff. So. Uh, that's where we'll be today, but before we jump in, I just want to give you a little recap if you're just now joining us in this Judges series. Uh, if you are new here, uh, we go through books of the Bible. Um, we started January 2020 before the world went crazy. Um, we started in Genesis, and we've worked our way all the way through uh, Joshua, then we jumped over to Revelation for a little while, uh, which was an amazing study, and now we're back in the book of Judges. Um, and we're in chapter 12. Uh, we've covered several of the judges and we'll be continuing today. We're going to look at, uh, we're going to be continuing Sam's message from last week, looking at the, the judge Jephthah. Then we're going to be looking at three minor judges and then we'll be looking at the final judge and he's a big one. Um, so that is the plan for today to catch you up. The judges were um, rulers of Israel during about a 400 year span. Um, and they're not like judges like we think of today. They're not like gowns and gavels. They're military and political leaders. Uh, judge was just the title that was given to them. Um, so that's where we're going to be today. That's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, I'm going to pray real quick uh, because I don't trust myself that much. So I'm going to pray and let God take over. And then we'll, uh, we'll jump into the message, okay? All right. Father God, we thank you so much for this day, Lord. We thank you for everything you do for us and you do through us. God, I just pray for your Holy Spirit to be here in this place right now. God, that you would break down walls, you would tear down barriers, you would open ears, Lord, and you would open hearts. God, I pray that you'd be with me as I bring the message, that it would not be my words that are heard or understood, Lord, that it would be your words and your truth. Father, I pray that you'd be here in this place, that you would speak through me and you would use me today as your vessel, Father. I pray that you'd be with each and every person in here, God, that you would, you would help them to leave behind whatever they brought in with them, God, and just be able to open their ears and their hearts to your word today. Father, we love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, London was originally going to come and, and sit in today's message, but I, I informed her that I would be starting with a story about her, and as you can tell, she is nowhere to be found, <laughs> probably for the best. Um, if, you guys, uh, if you guys don't know London, she's my six-year-old daughter. She runs around. Her and the rest of the kids are pretty sure they own this building, uh, which I think is awesome. Uh, they feel right at home here. Um, but she is in the, like, I'm scared phase. Any of you guys have kids or grandkids that, that went through that I'm scared phase? like scared of everything. I, I mean, we ask her to like walk across the house. Every light in the house is on, right? Um, every light is on and she, she can't leave our sight because she's scared. Um, bedtime is, as you can imagine, rough, but she is uh, kind of in that like, I just scared of everything phase. And so when we're watching a movie, um, all the time she'll ask me, is that real? Um, for instance, we were watching a, a new movie on Netflix uh, a couple days ago called We Can Be Heroes, I think it's the name of it. It's like a kid's superhero movie. And the movie opens up with these kids' parents who are all superheroes. Uh, there's like an alien invasion, and all the parents get kidnapped. Um, I think some kids would celebrate, but mine asked, <laughs> mine asked, are, are those real? Talking about the aliens. And I'm like, the, the aliens? She's like, yeah. I'm like, no, aliens aren't real. I mean, I don't guess so. I don't know. I didn't tell her that part. I just said no. Aliens aren't real. You don't have to worry about them. And so she asks us all the time, if we're watching a movie and there's like a monster, she's like, is that real? And I'm like, no, it's not real. You don't have to worry about it. And sometimes, sometimes they are real. Like she's like, are pirates real? I'm like, yeah, but not quite like this. And then if they're real, she asks me, but you can beat them up, right? I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that was a little big. I may need some help, but you, don't worry. We got this. Um, and uh, so she all the time is asking, is that real? And what she's really asking is, do I need to be afraid of that? 
right? Do I need to worry about that? Do I need to, do I need to fear that thing? Which is, I mean, a, a tactic that we all take, right? We're not afraid of things we don't believe in. You don't, hopefully, check under your bed every night before you go to bed afraid the boogeyman's going to be there. Now, if you do, I won't judge, but I'm just going to let you know right now it's not real, okay? So you don't really have to fear it, right? We don't fear things we don't believe in. This is a good survival tactic. That's why we're not running around afraid of alien invasion and, and monsters jumping out of the woods and everything else in Supernatural. Like, we're, we can not be afraid of those things because we're not, we don't believe they are real. The problem is this is also a tactic that the enemy uses. And right now he's convincing an entire culture and an entire world that God's not real. And what he's convincing them is God is dead. I actually requested that song this morning because I think that's an anthem we need to get back in our life is God's not dead. He's very much alive. But right now, the enemy is convincing the entire world that God's not real. And the natural progression from that is a culture that doesn't believe in God, and so they build for themselves their own morality. Right? When there's not an ultimate authoritarian source of morality, culture builds upon itself its own morality. We've seen it in the book of Judges over and over again. We've seen there was no king in the land, so the people did what was right in their own eyes. And that's what we are seeing in culture right now. We are seeing immorality run rampant because they don't believe in God. And for the record, if you don't believe in God, then you are choosing Satan. There is only two options. Anyone who gives you a third is wrong. There's two options. It is rather black and white. It is God or Satan. It is good or evil. It is heaven or hell. There is no in-between. And so we think that Satan's showing up in people's lives and he's like, hey, worship me, worship me. No, no, he's not trying to get you to worship him. He's trying to get you to rebel against God. That's been his strategy from the very beginning. Is he wants you to rebel against God because he knows if he can get you away from God, you will choose him, even if you don't know it. So if you're running away from God, you're running towards Satan. And that is why we look at culture and we are seeing culture get more and more corrupt. We are seeing the world get more and more broken because as they rebel further away from God, they're running closer and closer to Satan. And evil is running rampant in this world. But my God's not dead. My God's not dead. But what I want to bring our attention to today is how the enemy attacks. Because so often we get a misconception of how the enemy attacks. We assume that when the enemy attacks, when Satan attacks me, I'm going to feel down and I'm going to feel burdened and I'm going to feel helpless and I'm just going to feel broken and life is going to be horrible. I actually think the most common way that the enemy attacks people in America is through pride. Pride. If he can't tear you down, he'll build you up. Because there's a, lot, there's a lot of faith that is lost on the mountaintops. There's probably more faith lost on the mountaintops than in the valleys. Because when you're in the midst of the valley, you realize you need God. When you're in the valley and things are hurting and things are painful and it's not going your way, you're like, I need God so much. I need something greater than myself. I can't climb out of this valley. But when I'm on the mountaintop and things are going good... And things are going right, the business is booming, the kids aren't being as crazy, the marriage is fine. When you're on the mountaintop and you have nothing to pray for, that's where you're in danger. Because that's where pride sets in and that's where we turn away from God. Is because we decide, eh, I don't need God anymore. I got this. And so I want to suggest today the number one way that the enemy is attacking America is through pride. We're going to see in just a moment in Judges 12 the full effects of pride. And how destructive it can be. So if you would, go and turn in your Bibles with me to Judges 12. Uh, we'll just start in verse 1. 
says, The Ephraimite forces were called out, and they crossed over to Zaphon. They said to Jephthah, Why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn your house over your head. Well, that escalated quickly. So, if you recall, Jephthah just went and fought the Ammonites. Uh, he, was, he was called out. He was asked to go and fight the Ammonites on behalf of Israel. Uh, he was the illegitimate child of a prostitute from uh, Gilead, um, and he was asked to go fight the Ammonites. And he did. He did so, and he actually made a vow there on that day. Sam talked about it last week, that if God would deliver the Ammonites into their hands, that he would sacrifice the first thing that came out of his door. Now, we've seen, to our shock and terror, that the first thing to come out of his door was his only child, his daughter. Now, don't be confused, because this can be confusing to a lot of Christians. Just because it is in the Bible does not mean it is ordained by God, right? Just because you read it within the pages of Scripture does not mean it was what God chose or what God wanted. Sometimes we learn from people's mistakes. And in this moment, what we see is Jephthah, who has been corrupted by pagan ideologies, He has been corrupted by different pagan gods and pagan beliefs. And so he believes to please Yahweh, the God of Israel, he must give a sacrifice. And that sacrifice must be worthy to him. And so he does this. This is not what God wanted. God had already delivered the victory. He'd already delivered the Ammonites into Jephthah's hands. But Jephthah let the corrupt pagan culture corrupt his brain and send him in this way. That is not what God wished for him. Um, But he did, uh, Sam talked about some theologians think that it is metaphorical, some think that it's literal, you'll learn from me, Um, I came to faith 10 years ago, uh, and whenever I picked up the Bible, I I read it as completely literal, Uh, obviously there are the metaphors, there's the poetry that's in it, but other than that, if the Bible says it and it puts it in a historical context, I believe it literally, so I do unfortunately believe that literally happened and he gave up his daughter. And so in this moment, you now have the, the Ephraimites that have come up to Jephthah, who's not, probably not in a great mood at the moment, uh, and they threaten to burn his house down. Now, this is not an unusual tactic from the Ephraimites, if we remember a couple chapters back in Judges 8, uh, verse 1. It says, Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. So they went and challenged Gideon, and Gideon handled this in a little bit different way than Jephthah. We learned last week Jephthah was a little bit of a thug, Okay. He was a thug from Gilead. He was a hard dude, okay? He was not really the guy you wanted to mess with. And so when they come, they may have challenged Gideon, but they threatened Jephthah. And this was not a great decision. Right here in verse 2, Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites. And although I called, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites. And the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now, why have you come today to fight me? And so all of a sudden, the truth comes out. They came up, and and something interesting in verse 1, a couple of translations have this a little bit different, but uh, it says that they were called out. Um, And some translations says they went, and some translations say they were summoned. That's very different. Why did they approach Jephthah? Well, I looked at the original Hebrew. The word they use there for called out is definitely translated to summoned. So they were called to come see Jephthah, possibly on the account of them not helping fight. And so they immediately show up defensively. Why didn't you call us when you went to fight the Ammonites? Why didn't you call us? We would have been there. But right here, Jephthah says, no, I did call you, and you weren't here. And so the truth comes out. You know why they were mad? They weren't mad they didn't get to fight the Ammonites. They didn't want to fight. They had that opportunity. They were mad they didn't get credit for the victory. They were mad they didn't get glory 
for what he had done. You see, the Ephraimites had this bad habit of worrying more and more about what other people thought of them than they did serving God. And if we're not careful, we'll fall into that same trap. We get more consumed with getting the applause of man than the approval of God. We get more consumed with, with making people laugh and making people cheer and make people thinking that we're all this and we have all that and we have it all together that we get so consumed with pleasing the world that we forget about the one we're actually meant to please. And so I've titled today's message, Who Do You Serve? Who do you serve? Because every action, every word, we are serving someone. Are we serving God or are we serving this world? Are we serving God or are we serving this world? You see, they, the Ephraimites here were so consumed with getting the approval of other people, of getting the approval of man, that they forgot about the approval of God and what they were called to do. Romans 12, 2, the Apostle Paul warns us of this. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And I have this, this quote that I, I kind of I try to apply this to my life. I heard it somewhere. I can't even remember where at this point. But it's to live for the applause of nail-pierced hands. If I were standing on a stage and all I received was the applause of nail-pierced hands, if all I received was the applause of Jesus, that is enough. If I don't please anyone else in this world, if I don't... If I don't bend to culture and, and get the approval of the entire world, if, if I don't get the approval of anyone but Jesus, that is enough. Because I live for the applause of nail-pierced hands. No other hands matter. No other hands matter. We as Christians, as followers of Jesus, should be living our life to please Jesus. To, to, to live our life, to follow the commands, to follow the rules, to follow what is put in this book for us because we are living for God, not for mankind. You see, Jeff, in this moment, he realizes where his victory comes from. And he even says, the Lord gave us this victory. Why have you now come to fight us? And then they, they throw out a few more insults and Jeff says, fine, let's go. And 42,000 Ephraimites died during this war. This is a civil war, mind you, a, tr a war between two tribes of Israel. As they begin to fight each other, a war based entirely on pride. The Ephraimites were too proud to admit they didn't want to fight. They were afraid. And Jephthah was too proud to let a few hollow words go. And so they declared war. And Jephthah and the Gileadites killed 42,000 Ephraimite men. You see, pride is the great divider. We see pride show up right here in the middle of these Israelite tribes, in the middle of this dispute, and divide them. But listen, pride is the same thing that divides churches still today. There is church split and church split and church split that takes place because of pride. Because someone thinks they can do it better. Someone thinks they're not doing a good enough job. Someone thinks the carpet should be this color. Someone thinks the chandelier was too expensive or the sun shouldn't be doing the books. It's pride. It's pride. It all comes down to pride, and pride is the great divider. And I truly believe that if the enemy can't get you by beating you down, then he'll build you up. I would actually be willing to say that building you up is a little bit more dangerous. A little bit more dangerous because when we're on the top of the mountaintop, it's when we think we no longer need God. You see, the enemy will, will build you up because he knows that when we think we can do it all, then we'll cut God out of the equation. 
See, pride is incredibly destructive. We've seen it here with the Ephraimites and with Jephthah. We've seen it, uh, we see it throughout churches still today. We see it in politics still today. We see it just running rampant in the world today that pride is a great divider, and the enemy will absolutely use your pride against you. Matthew 23, 12, Jesus says, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now listen, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be grateful, but we have to recognize the difference between gratefulness and pride. There are absolutely blessings that God has given you in your life. There's absolutely good things that God has brought into your life. I love the way Charles Spurgeon said it. He says, suppose a man who is a great pedestrian has been over the Alps and traversed Europe, and then here is his walking stick, and it boasts, I am the most traveled walking stick in creation. I've smitten the craggy brows of the Alps and bathed myself in the Nile. Well, says one, but wherever you have gone, you have been carried by a power beyond yourself. So let the man who boasts in experience remember that in the paths of peace, he has gone nowhere except as the Lord's hand has borne him onward. He has been nothing but a staff in God's hands. And while he should be grateful, he should never be proud. And so all the good things in your life, absolutely be grateful. Be cheerful. Praise the Lord even more. Praise the Lord for the good things. Praise the Lord for the mountaintops. Praise the Lord for the blessings. Praise the Lord for all the good things that have come into your life. Because God is good. But don't become proud. Because when you become proud, you start to cut God out of the equation. You start to think that you can do it all yourself. I would be more concerned with the words, no, I'm good. No, things are actually going great. No, I don't need any help. Those words are a little bit more concerning to me than I'm hurting and I'm broken and I'm sorrowful. Because in those moments, you need God. It's when you're on the top of the mountaintop that we start to think we can do it all by ourselves, and we don't need God. What's interesting to me is how the story flows. We see Jephthah. We see the, we see the battle of pride. And we see 42,000 Ephraimites die. And then Jephthah dies. And then we cut to the next story. And there's actually three stories here. Um, or, or lack there of stories, actually. We're going to see three minor prophets. Um, these th minor prophets, they're not called minor prophets because they're less than or weaker than the other prophets. It's just we know a lot less about them. And these are the prophets Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. I was not going to try to do this from memory. But we see these three prophets. Um, and what I find interesting is immediately following this chapter from the Ephraimites where all they really wanted was the credit. All they really wanted was the glory. All they really wanted was for their story to be told. We immediately see three individuals who have almost none of their story told. Almost none of it. We see with the first guy, uh, we see that he had many children. The next, Elon, he died. That was his crowning accomplishment. And, and Abdon, he had a lot of kids who had donkeys. Read it for yourself. That was it. I studied it. I looked it up in commentaries. That's all we got. We have a collective 25 years of leadership of Israel, and all you can tell is they had kids, they died, and they had donkeys. I, I mean, I don't know why we don't know more about these guys. Maybe they desperately wanted their stories to be told, and so God's like, no. No, you don't get your story told. I don't know. But what I do know is there's something we can learn from this, is that we are actually blessed when people don't know our story. You see, we'll see great things happen 
You'll see great things happen in your life when you serve God in secret. When you serve God in secret. There's so many people out there that will serve God and do great things so that they can receive the glory from other people. You, ever, you don't have to like raise your hand or say names or anything. Have you ever met someone like this? You're like, how was your vacation? And they're like, well, I just couldn't take a vacation with all the wrong in the world right now. So I took that entire vacation pay and I gave it to charity. Or, or someone's like, I'm so tired. I was just up all night praying about what's happening in Haiti right now. Like, what? okay, that's good. I'm glad that you gave your vacation money and I'm glad you're up all night praying. But you sitting there bragging about it? Jesus says you already got your reward. Matthew 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving may be done in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see, their story was never told. And I think maybe in some ways that's a blessing. Because that means their, their, their treasure was in heaven. Their glory was in heaven. I'm not saying the other judges didn't get there. But I'm saying whenever we do good things and we give to charity and we do all these amazing things to receive glory upon ourselves, Jesus says we already received our reward. You already received your reward. You see, we serve to please God. We serve to please God and help others, not to glorify self. As Christians, we are called to be selfless. We are called to love unconditionally. We are called to love those who hate us, those who persecute us. We are called to be the hands and the feet of Christ. Not so that we receive glory, but because he receives glory. Right? Everything we do, we do for the glory of God. Whenever we lose track of that, when we lose track of who we are doing this for, is when we start to fall into dangerous territory. And, and, and lately, I've seen it happen with a lot of preachers, sadly so. A lot of preachers have started to, to fall into this trap and have started to give in to sin. And I think it's because they forget their place. One of the things, I, I, I never want to like stand up here and, and present myself as a, above above you guys at all. Like, I, trust me, if I'm preaching, it's because God's been preaching to me all week, okay? This is a, a gift, and, I, and it's been exalted, I think, farther than it probably should be. Our, our, our gifting and the teaching pastor's gifting, our gifting is that we can talk. And trust me, none of us chose this. If you ever heard our stories, none of us wanted this. This was not my gifting ever. Like, I, 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 they're like, what do you want to do for God? Anything but that. That's a really dangerous statement. Don't say that. All right? But you have to remember your place. Pride can make its way into the heart of any man or any woman, and it can destroy a ministry, and it can tear down a church. You have got to remember your place. Up here, I'm just a messenger. I'm, just a, I'm, I'm the UPS guy. When your Amazon package arrives, you don't praise the messenger. You don't praise the UPS guy. You say, thank you. Quit standing on my porch. It's weird. And you get your package. And you say, thank you, Amazon gave me my package. It wasn't the messenger. He just did his job. That's all we're doing. We can't have pride up here. and We can't have pride out there because pride will tear down a ministry. Pride will tear down a minister, and it will tear down a church. We've got to make sure pride doesn't get inside of us because pride is the great deceiver. It's the great destroyer. We serve to please God, 
and tell others not to glorify self. So now we're going to jump into the story of a man who is not very good at this. Everything we just talked about, he doesn't do this well. I'll tell you his name at the end just to keep you on, on edge, okay? Judges 13, we'll start in verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them in the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. This is a very common occurrence in the book of Judges. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 2. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. Now, it should be noted, that is important. We see this kind of as a recurring theme in Scripture, that we see uh, women who are unable to have children. And it should be noted that in this time, that was considered to be a divine curse, a curse from God or gods, depending on what you believed at that time. It was considered to be a divine curse. And so for her to be unable to have children, for them to be unable to bear children, would have been thought of as a, a really like shameful thing. And which I think is interesting because we see God come to those of them who would have been subject to shame, subject to ridicule, those who would have been thought of as cursed. We see it over and over again. We see it with Abraham and Sarah. God showed up and gave them a child. We see it with Isaac and Rebekah. God showed up and gave them a child. We see it with Jacob's second wife, Rachel. God showed up and gave her a child. We see it with the mother of Samuel. God showed up and gave them a child. We're going to see it in just a moment with Manoah and his wife that God show up, shows up in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their shame, and gives them what they've been praying for. You see, I want you to know as we go through this that these moments where God does incredible things, that wasn't just then, it still happens here today. God is still doing incredible, miraculous things today. God is still good and he's still present. He's not dead. He is surely alive and he is still active and working today. And so you can pray for miracle, and you can pray for help, you can pray for deliverance, you can pray for, for, for a child, you can pray for a better situation, you can pray to those things. Our Bible says that God is listening. He has never left you, nor has he forsaken you. He is there, and he is present with you. And when you lift your words to him, he receives them, and he hears them. God is good all the time. Amen. Judges 13. Let's jump into verse 3. The angel of the Lord, remember that statement, we'll come back to it, appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, one thing I want us to note here is that it says he will take lead. That means he is not going to single-handedly deliver them from the Philistines. This is actually uh, uncharacteristic of the other judges. The other judges came in, fought the battle, and was able to deliver Israel from the hands. But right here we see that this judge is not going to fully deliver them from the hands of the Philistines, to whom they have been in bondage now for 40 years and what's interesting to note also is they never cried out to God. In 40 years, it never mentions that they cried out to God. We see in every other passage, in every other part of Judges, that God came when they cried out. But it seems this time that they were so corrupted that they never cried out to God. But yet God still loves his children. And he still shows up in the midst of their brokenness. 
in the midst of this situation, and he blesses them. So the first thing we want to take note of in the scripture is the boy will be a Nazarite. What in the world is a Nazarite, you ask? Uh, it's funny you ask. I looked it up. Uh, in number six, uh, it talks about a Nazarite vow. And this is a vow that an Israelite would take, uh, male or female, and it was a temporary vow. This was not a lifelong thing. We see a few times in Scripture that it is taken as a lifelong vow. Uh, John the Baptist is, is uh, usually a good example of that. Uh, but a few times in Scripture, it's a lifelong vow. But most of the time, it is a temporary segment of time. And during that time, there are certain rules and customs you carry that makes you different than everyone else. And so this vow, in essence, was to make you holy or set apart from the rest of culture. Right, And it was, uh, you are not to drink or eat from the vine, drink any fermented drinks. You cannot touch nor see a dead body, and you are unable to shave or, or cut your hair at any point in time. That was the Nazarite vow. The purpose of it was for you to spend a, a period of time fully dedicated to God. And in that dedication, you set yourself apart. It's funny because that's actually the call of the Christian life, is to set yourself apart. God says, be holy as I am holy. Holy just means set apart, to be different than culture, be different than the world. When the world interacts with the Christian, they should see that they are different. Jesus says, they will know you by my love, or they will know you by your love. And I really, really wish that were true today. See, I, I grew up 22 years of my life not being a Christian, and I encountered Christians. And so I know how we can be. And my first thought of Christians wasn't loving, almost never. Now, my grandma was real loving. That was the one I had. And that's why we are called to be different. In a world filled with hate, oh, the world's absolutely filled with hate. Go on Twitter and say something countercultural. All right? I have. It's, uh, it's interesting. The world is filled with hate. They're getting hate everywhere else. They're getting judgmental attitudes everywhere else. They're getting people that disapprove of them and hate them everywhere else. You know what they're not getting? People that love them enough to tell them the truth. They're not. Now, we can show love. Now, listen, I, I have to say this like every week it feels like, but love is not tolerance, right? Culture is trying to convince us love is tolerance. Love is not tolerance. Love is loving someone enough to tell them the truth because you know what is good for them. It is not loving to let someone live in sin without ever knowing the truth without ever having a chance to turn toward God. That is not loving. It would be very uncaring of me to see that you are dying of a fatal disease, have the cure, and keep it to myself because I don't want to hurt your feelings. That's not loving. Loving is sharing the truth with people, sharing it with gentleness and respect, as it says in 1 Peter, to share the truth with gentleness and respect and in love, but it is still to share the truth. People are getting lies everywhere else. They should be receiving the truth from the church. They should be receiving the truth from Christians. And they should, be share, they should be receiving love from Christians. We are called to do that, to be different, to be set apart. If you walk into work on Monday morning and no one can tell a difference between you and your coworkers that don't know Jesus, that's a problem. If you can go to the football game and no one can tell a difference between you and the people that don't know Jesus, that's a problem. We should be different. We are called to be different. We are called to be loving and accepting, and not just to some people. Jesus says even, even the pagans, even the pagans love the, those people that love them. He calls us to love our enemies. 
He calls us to love those who persecute us. And in this time, those are the people that were killing you. You were supposed to love them. I mean, there's a little bit of Twitter persecution, a little bit of Facebook persecution, but there's nothing like what they're facing. We are called to love those people. And again, I'm going to repeat, love means sharing the truth in love and loving them through it. So uh, this child was supposed to take the Nazarite vow where he would be different, and where he would be set apart. Uh, I'm not going to dive too deep into that uh, because I don't really have the time. Pastor Dennis is going to finish off the life of him, and it's going to be uh, incredible. Uh, I'm going to continue through the passage right here in, in verse 11. Um, we see that after the angel came to Manoah's wife, she goes and tells her husband, and then Manoah prays fervently for, uh, for the angel to come back and speak to him. Uh, and whenever he does, he actually, it's interesting because the angel comes back only to the wife again. And so then the wife rushes and gets her husband. Uh, and then Manoah comes up and says, Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, are you the man who talked to my wife? I am, he said. Those are powerful. Those are big words. We'll come back to those. But Manoah continues to clarify how they should raise their son, which I think is really interesting here. Is the amount of faith that we see from Manoah and his wife Every other time that God has showed up and gave someone a child where they are barren, there's always a bit of hesitation. If you remember, Sarah laughs, and so they name Isaac laughter, right? We remember even Mary said, but I'm a virgin, right? In every other situation, uh, whenever um, Zechariah, he, he contested, uh, and, and he was made mute until the baby was born, until John the Baptist was born, right? Every other time that God shows up and gives a child, there's, a, there's just a moment of hesitation. But right here, Manoah's like, oh, where's he at? I need to talk to him. I need to ask him questions. How are we going to do it? Like, Manoah is ready. I think just seeing the faith out of this couple is incredible. But also, something else I want to jump into is how they choose to raise their son, where did they go first? They didn't go to How to Raise a Baby for Dummies. They didn't go to Google. They didn't go to all their parenting friends. They went to God on how to raise their child. That is so powerful. And honestly, if we as parents would go to God on how to raise our children, we would see a different world in 15 years. But if we keep going, I'm not saying those books are bad. We have a whole shelf full of how to raise a one-year-old and two-year-old and all this stuff that didn't work. Uh, anyway, <laughs> we have a bunch of it. We spent the money. We bought it. And if we continue to raise our children like the world, they'll end up just like the world. We have to raise our children to follow Jesus. We have to raise our children with an absolute truth, and that absolute truth is that God is supreme, God is the ultimate authority, God is good, God is real, God is not dead. We spend a whole lot of time convincing them about Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and everything else, and we skip over Jesus. Don't skip over Jesus. That is the most important thing they'll ever know, is Jesus. I'd rather have a dumb kid that loves Jesus than a smart kid that doesn't. I'll be honest. I would rather have a dumb kid that loves Jesus. That honestly is more important to me than a college education, is where they are. Because a college education will destroy faith. I've seen it over and over again. I'm a youth pastor. I'd rather have my kid love Jesus than anything else. And I love that Manoah and his wife, they go to God on how to raise their child. Go to God on how to raise your child, children. See, I can't even talk. Dumb kid loves Jesus. That's all it takes. All right? Verse 24, the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. There we go. The final judge is Samson. 
We see that the final judge is, is Samson. I'm, again, I'm not going to go into the life of Samson. Pastor Dennis is going to cover that in great detail next week. Um, I want to talk about another figure in this passage that can sometimes be overlooked when we get so focused on the people. And according to my timer that I'm probably not going to keep, I have seven minutes, so we'll see how that goes. The person that I want to look at in this passage is the angel of the Lord. You see, what ended up happening is this angel came back, and Manoah was able to speak to him, and then they tried to feed him. And he says, don't try to feed me. He says, offer it as a burnt offering. And when they do, he ascends with the flames, which had to be quite a show. And immediately, in verse 22, Manoah says, we are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. Now, his wife being the rational one of the bunch, said, okay, that's an interesting thought, but why would he have accepted our offering if he was going to kill us? And why would he tell us all that stuff about the son and the boy? And the, why would he have done all that if he was going to kill us? And he's like, all right, you're probably right. <laughs> it, man, we'll make it really far in life if we listen to our wives, right? Amen, ladies? Uh, just sometimes Google why, why women live longer than men. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting uh, Google uh, search. You'll get all kinds of pictures of men doing dumb things on ladders. It's hilarious. Uh, not me, terrified of heights, someone else. But what we see here is the angel of the Lord, or whom Manoah finally correctly identifies, God himself. Many theologians would call this a theophany. It's a fancy word. It means when God tangibly shows himself to mankind. However, I don't think that's the case. I believe this is actually a Christophany, which is the appearance of Christ on earth prior to his incarnation or prior to his birth. You see, we read in Scripture that God says man cannot lay their eyes on the face of God. We see when Moses tried, he, he seen God's backside as it passed by and his face glue for a long time. Man cannot lay their eyes on the face of God. And so when we see the angel of the Lord, now different, notice, when you're reading your Bible, notice, does it say the angel of the Lord or does it say an angel of the Lord? Because that makes all the difference. When you read the angel of the Lord, we're talking about God himself. I believe we're talking about Jesus Christ. Because the angel of the Lord translates to the messenger of God. Who, what is the message? It is the word. And we know that Jesus is the word who was there before creation. Through the word, all things were made. Through Jesus, all things came forth. So I believe every time we see God in humanly, bodily form, we are looking at the face of Jesus. And I know that that's a little bit weird to think that, oh, Jesus was in the Old Testament. Jesus didn't come around until like Matthew. Like that's when we get the whole Christmas story. We have to remember over and over again, Jesus claims that he existed prior to his birth. Just look at this conversation. I'm going to read in John uh, 8, uh, 56. Maybe I have it up here. Let's see. Look at that. There, I have it. In John 8, 56. I always forget what I put on this TV. I have it in my notes, but I forget still. Jesus says, in a conversation with the, these uh, Jewish men, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Amen. Now you might ask, what in the world does I am mean? I'm glad you asked. You didn't have much choice. I told you that you asked, but that's fine. Exodus 3.14. Hey, look at that. 
God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am is the name of God. I am is how God introduces himself. And so when Manoah went to the angel and he says, are you the one who spoke to my wife? The angel responded with one word, I am. Two words, one word in Hebrew, I am. All right? Dumb kid loves Jesus, all you need, okay? I am. And so what we see in this passage of scripture, what we see in this passage of scripture is Jesus doing what he does best. He shows up in the midst of brokenness. He shows up in the midst of defeat. He shows up in the midst of shame. He shows up in the midst of addiction. He shows up in terrible, horrible situations that we never think we're going to get ourselves out of, and he pulls you out of them. He showed up to Manoah and his wife in the midst of defeat, in the midst of being crushed, in the midst of a culture that had no idea where he was or who he was. Forty years without God, and they refused to cry out. And so Jesus shows up when there was no hope. And I'm not going to lie to you guys. I look at this world, and I'm wondering if there is any hope. I look at this world, and this world is so messed up, and it is so corrupt, and it's so overrun by pride and evil and sexual immorality, and it is just so destroyed, and I wonder, is there hope? And then I remember who my God is. My God is the one who shows up when you think your situation is hopeless. He does his absolute best work in the midst of hopeless situations. Matthew 19, 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. It sure looks good on a coffee mug. But how many of us believe it? How many of us believe it? You see, maybe losing hope. You may be losing hope today. Losing hope in this world. Losing hope in politics, in medicine, in religion, in yourself, in your job, in your doctors, in God. You may think your situation is hopeless. And I'm here to tell you today that God does his best work in the midst of hopeless situations. You see, there is hope, and he has a name, Jesus. Jesus is where our hope comes from. Jesus is where our hope comes from. To you, it may look impossible. It may look like it's over. It may look like you've lost. It may look like it's inevitable. It may look like it's, you're defeated. It may look like the world is too far gone. It may look like evil is reigning supreme. It may look like there is no hope. But I serve a God that shows up to barren women and gives them children that will change the world. I serve a God who chooses a backslider to go and preach to Nineveh. I serve a God who shows up to an old man who brings forth Isaac. I serve a God who chose a, a virgin to give birth to the Messiah. I chose a God who looks at a blind man and tells him to see. I serve a God who looks at a lame man and tells him to walk. I serve a God who looks at a tomb and says, I'll be right back. I serve a God who looked at death and said, you are done, and looked at Satan and said, your time is running out. You serve, I serve a God who does his best work in the midst of hopeless situations. The only hopelessness is when you're relying on this world. When you rely on yourself and rely on this world, that's where hopelessness is. But if you want to see hope, turn your back on this world and turn your face toward Jesus and serve him and him alone. Because there is no such thing as a hopeless situation when my God is involved. There is no such thing as hopelessness. He will set the addict free. 
He will make the blind see. He'll make the sick healthy. He'll bring the dead to life. He will do incredible things if you will turn your face toward him and serve him alone. There is no such thing as hopelessness. What is impossible for you is probable with God, and he will do incredible things in the midst of it. So if you're here today and you're hurting, and life isn't going good, and the world looks like it's on fire from every direction, turn to God and let him turn it all around for you. And if you're here today and you've never made the decision to follow Jesus, or maybe you have, or maybe you know the Easter and Christmas story like I did. I thought I was a Christian. I really did. But I sure wasn't following the one the stories were about. And so if you're here today and you've never made that commitment to follow Jesus, the Bible actually makes it incredibly easy. Following Jesus isn't hard. It's believing your heart, saying with your mouth that he is Lord, and then he died for you. And then we read in our Bible that if you say those words, you believe those in your heart, that your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. We studied a few weeks ago in Revelation that one day God will come back, he will stand victorious, and he will open up the book of life. And those whose name is in the book of life will stand victorious with him. So I feel like I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't give you that opportunity. So I'm just going to take a moment. Everyone bow your head, close your eyes, and... The reason we do this isn't to be weird, but it's so that you can have a moment with God alone, without the eyes and the attention of anyone else. If you're here today and you want to make the decision to follow Jesus, I want to give you that opportunity. You say with your mouth, you believe in your heart that he is Lord. And I'm going to have you pray with me. We're going to say a simple prayer to Jesus. Not a lot of requirements. I've covered it today. Dumb kid, love Jesus. That's it. It's the only requirement. So if that's you and you're here today and you want to follow Jesus... If you want to give him your life and be his, have your name written in that Lamb's book of life. On the count of three, I want you to raise your hand and then you can put it right back down. We're just going to pray together as friends. If that's you and you want to make that decision, raise your hand. One, two, three. Amen. 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 You can put your hands down. Now, I just want you to pray this prayer with me. And I want, I want to tell you about this prayer. You're praying it to Jesus. You're not talking to the seat in front of you or the walls around you or the person beside you. My God says that where two or three are gathered in his name, he is in the midst. He is right here with you. And so say to him and repeat after me, Jesus, today I give you my life. I am yours. I believe you are the son of God. And I believe you died for my sins. Today, I surrender to you. I turn away from my sins and I pursue you. From this day forward, I will follow you to the best of my ability. Jesus, today, I am yours. Amen. And if that's you and you prayed that prayer and you lifted it to Jesus, today I believe you are a new creation. Today you are saved. Today your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Today you are different. And your hope no longer relies in this world, in politics or medicine or anything else. Your hope is in Jesus alone. Let me pray for you just as a body and then we'll, we'll head out of here. Father, we thank you so much for this day. 
Lord, I thank you for everything you do for us and you do through us. I just pray for your Holy Spirit to be here in this place, that not a soul would be here without feeling your presence today. God, that we would feel you, that we would know you. Lord, I pray that whatever we're going through, whatever we're facing today, God, that we would surrender it to you. God, I pray for your strength and your hope during this difficult time. Father, I pray that you would just be with each and every person here, Lord. I lift them to you. In Jesus' name, amen.